0: pray together. Father, we just thank you for your presence here this morning. Father, we need um, our minds to be opened to your Word. Um, we confess that as we come to worship, Lord, we come burdened with uh, just the realities of our life. Father, we become burdened with uh, the worries and anxieties that tend to plague our minds, Lord. And, and uh, we just pray that you would break through all the noise that tends to capture our minds and capture our attentions, Lord, and help us to catch a glimpse of you and your greatness through the power of your word. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Whenever I, um, whenever I travel away from Baltimore and uh, I talk to other people, I tell them, they ask me where I'm from, and I tell them, well, I'm from Baltimore. And they always kind of grin and give me a smile. And the first question that they always ask me, about Baltimore is, is it just like the wire? I get that all the time everywhere I go, and usually I say, well, yes and no. It kind of is and it kind of isn't all at the same time. So most people outside of the city characterize us by a a show that's been on HBO. But a poll came out recently, I think it was put on by the, the Warnock Foundation, And they asked actual Baltimore residents, what do you think most defines the city of Baltimore? And ten out of every one, or one out of every ten, or however it was, overwhelmingly said The Wire. Even Baltimore residents said The Wire far more than the Ravens or the Orioles or anything else that they could characterize Baltimore. Even Baltimore residents characterized themselves by this show on HBO. If you've ever seen the show, uh, it, I think it went lasted for five seasons or something like that. But all, all it does is it shows really how messy Baltimore is. And actually, as you watch it, you, you don't, you're not left with a whole lot of hope that something can fix the mess that exists in Baltimore. Well, the past couple weeks we've been looking at the life of, of this man Jacob in the Old Testament. We actually believe that he was an actual person. He wasn't just a mythical character or some sort of story that God used to explain life lessons to us, but he was an actual person that God chose to establish a great nation through. But as you look through his life, he becomes a real case study on what it's like to live a life in relationship with God. His life by no means is pretty. In fact, it's it's a huge mess, but what it does is it shows us what a life lived in relationship with God is all about, and just how messy sometimes that is, because Jacob's life and his story was all about mess, and it was all about struggle. And if we're honest with our lives, if we really look at ourselves and peer deeply into our hearts, we have to honestly say that our lives are more messy than they are neat, our lives are more confused than they are organized. Our lives are more broken than they are perfect. You know, really popular and I believe false view of Christianity or this life of faith goes like this. We realize that our lives are messy, so we make every effort as we, that we can, we try as hard as we can to try to clean up our lives as best as possible. And once we've cleaned it up as best as possible, then God will enter in and then everything will be neat and tidy and wonderful. It'll be nothing, light, nothing but rainbows and sunshine. But the gospel gives us a really very different picture of what it's like to live in a relationship of faith with God. Because the gospel tells us that, that our lives are messy. And that there's nothing that we can do in and of ourselves to clean up that mess. But God invades. God comes in. He steps into the middle of our mess. And he redeems us. And after he steps into our mess, he begins this work of redemption that really is a lifelong process of which God begins to clean up the mess in which God begins to shape and mold us and to change us more and more into his character. But that doesn't mean that the Christian life is necessarily an easy one. It's not full of sunshine and rainbows. In fact, it often is characterized as a very difficult path. Jesus himself walked a path of rejection when he was here on this earth, and he says that his followers, if they're truly following him, will walk a similar path of rejection. But it'll often involve times in which he is working in our lives, sometimes in very easy ways, but often in very difficult ways, to shape and mold us more and more into his image because he's committed to us. He's not going to leave us. He's not for, it's going to forsake us. He's committed to us, and he's committed to shaping us into the people that he desires, into the image of his Son, Jesus Christ. And what the story of Jacob shows us this morning is three very powerful ways that God uses to shape us more and more into his image that we're going to look at this morning. The first is that God often uses people or others or a community to shape us and to make us who we are. If you were with us last week, we we learned very quickly about the character of Jacob, and it's not a very good character. Jacob, from the very beginning, is a deceiver. He's a trickster. He's a conniver. And what he does is he begins immediately to trick his brother, to connive his brother out of the blessing, out of the family inheritance that his older brother Esau deserved because of his standing in life. Jacob methodically tricks him out of it. And it angers Esau so much that Esau is ready to kill his brother Jacob. So Jacob realizes that he needs to flee his home. He needs to leave or he will be killed by his older brother. So we read last week that Jacob leaves home, and he's in the wilderness, he's in the desert, he's in a very unfamiliar place to him. It says that he's a homebody, he's a, he's a guy that likes to stay home, but he's thrust out into the wilderness, he's thrust out into this desert, into things that are unknown to him. And what the story last week that we read tells us is that God showed up in a very powerful and transformative way in Jacob's life. Jacob had a dream in which he saw angels ascending and descending on a ladder. And what God did in that very powerful transformative moment is he showed up in a real way in Jacob's life in such a way that Jacob knew he could never ever be the same again. When God showed up, he promised to Jacob, he said, I will be with you and I will never leave you and I will never walk away from you. I am committed to you. But even after that powerful moment, even after that transformative moment, things are still not good for Jacob. He's in the wilderness. He's in the desert. He's in everything that's unfamiliar. So what he does is he flees to, the, to his relatives. He flees to Haran, where he knows his uncle Laban lives. And he enters into this relationship with his uncle Laban that stands, um, that, that, that is about a 20 year long relationship that becomes one of the most defining relationships for Jacob in his entire life. A 20 year relationship that epitomizes the term that we've all heard before that says, what goes around comes around. What goes around comes around. Because in a very real way, this, this relationship shaped, shaped Jacob in a powerful way over his 20 years. And what it does is it reminds us that often God uses other people in our lives to shape us into who he wants us to be. If you've been with me before, you've heard me talk about uh, the book, uh, Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, probably one of the most profound books that I've ever read in terms of my own spiritual life. And I've told you before that at one of the chapters in in C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity, is called The Great Sin. And what he he talks about in this chapter about the great sin is this whole issue of pride. And what he says is that often God will bring other very prideful people into our lives to show us just how prideful we are. In fact, what he says in the book is if you want to test just how prideful you are, Test it by examining how much you loathe other prideful people in our lives. Part of his argument is that God brings other people into our lives, sometimes as a mirror to our own faults. Think about the person in your life right now that may irk you the most, that may annoy you or irritate you more than any other person on this planet, and what is the thing about them that most irritates you? Chances are the the fault in them that most irritates you is the fault that may most define your life. Because God, in sometimes painful ways, brings people into our path, brings people into our lives who mirror our faults for us and help us to see that fault in and of ourselves. Well, this is what happens to Jacob. Jacob's a deceiver. Deception has characterized his entire life. But then he meets his uncle, who is is as equally deceptive as Jacob is. The passage that we read uh, just a moment ago uh, really starts out almost as this really beautiful kind of love story between Jacob and Rachel. It's almost one of these love at first sight stories. Jacob meets Rachel by this well, and uh, he immediately falls in love with her. And he uh, meets his uncle and begins to work. He he wants to marry Rachel almost immediately, but in in the ancient Near East, you had to have what's called a bride price. So if a groom wanted to marry a woman, he'd have to almost uh, purchase her, in some sense, from her father. And that would involve livestock and possessions and all this sort of stuff. Well, Jacob has nothing. He's on the run. He has nothing, so all he can do for, for this love of his life, Rachel, is to work incessantly for her for seven years. And it says he deeply loved her. One of the most romantic verses in all of uh, Genesis says this, so Jacob served seven years for, his, for, for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love that he had for her. It's a great love story, right? Well, it doesn't stay that way for sure, as we know. The seven years passes and then Jacob's wedding day comes, the day he's been anticipating for so long. But the morning, after, the morning after the wedding, Jacob realizes that in fact he did not marry Rachel, but that he married and slept with her older sister Leah. This is one of those kind of head-scratcher, head-scratcher passages in the book of Genesis but the, the, the passage tells us that Leah's eyes were, re- were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. And what the, what, what the storyteller is trying to get across is that, Ra- that Leah in this story was the unloved character and Rachel was the loved character. Leah was the, was the unwanted one and Rachel was the desired one. And Jacob has become the one that is deceived. The deceiver has been duped by someone who's a better deceiver than him. The victimizer has now become the one that is victimized. And he gets a very clear taste of his own medicine. And it reminds us that God at times places people in our lives that are mirrors to our own faults. That person that God that, may, that, that irks you so much is in your life for a reason. God has put them there for a reason. I can remember one time, uh, having kids becomes one of the most sanctifying events of your entire life. I will warn you, if you don't have kids now, just get ready. Because I remember at one point, uh, I love my kids dearly, I love them uh, more than anything in the world, but at times they have behaviors that irk me and at times they have behaviors that grate on me and grate on my personality, and for a long time, our kids would exhibit some of this behavior at home, and uh, we would blame school. Well, they're learning this bad behavior from all those other little brats at school, and uh, they're picking it up, and they're bringing it home, and we're having to deal with it at home. But then at one point, I realized that actually they weren't learning that behavior from those bratty kids at school. They were actually learning it from me. And the thing that most bothered me, the thing that most grated on me for my very own kids were faults that they had learned simply by observing me. See, the truth is God puts people in our lives to sometimes shape and grow and mold us. He puts people in our lives to help us see sometimes the very things we don't want to see about ourselves. This is why being involved in a church and a community of faith is so important. You'll run into a lot of people in our culture now that say, why can't it just be me and Jesus? Why can't it just be me and my Bible and my prayer life and Jesus and be okay? Why, I've moved past the church. But the truth is, we don't always get to pick who we go to church with. We don't always get to handpick the people in our lives. And it's God's way of sometimes molding us and shaping us into the people that he wants us to be. Because he created us to be in community, not just for all the the lovely, wonderful benefits of community, but also sometimes for the very abrasive benefits of community. Because they shape us into who he wants us to be. So God sends people into our lives to shape us. But he also does this. God shapes us through the circumstances of our lives as well. He shapes us through the circumstances of our lives. This love story that was so beautiful, that had such promise at the very beginning, uh, turns south really quickly. It becomes very sordid when you look through the details. Jacob, of course, has been duped. He worked seven years for Rachel, and he gets Leah instead. So what he does is he promises to work an extra seven years in order to have Rachel as his wife as well. But what this does is this introduces a whole nother sibling rivalry between Rachel and Leah. See, the truth is, in the ancient Near Eastern culture, a woman's honor would be defined by how many sons that she bore. Her entire identity, her entire worth as a person was wrapped up in the amount of sons that she could birth for her husband. But in this marriage of two now, Leah is the first one to get pregnant. And she very quickly bears seven sons for Jacob. As Rachel's observing this, it gets harder and harder for her to be in this relationship. She gets, she gets angry. She gets upset. She gets fumed because she can't provide that very thing that she could wrap her identity in. So what she does is she re- resorts to concubinage. She finds her handmaid, a woman by the name of Bilhah, and she gives her to Jacob in her stead. And Bilhah very quickly produces two sons for Jacob. Well, Leah observes this and realizes she doesn't want to be outdone herself. So she provides her handmaiden, Zilpah, for Jacob. And Zilpah then bears two children for Jacob after that. And then we read in chapter 13 of a very bizarre event involving mandrakes. Okay, you can go home and read it on your own. But it, it, how it boils down is, is Rachel uh, bargains a night of sex with Jacob for these mandrakes. I don't quite understand all the details of it, but it works out that way. But because of that, Leah then produces another son and then another son for Jacob. And Rachel is living this life of futility. The very thing that she most desires, she cannot have. And then finally, Rachel, at the very end of the narrative, becomes pregnant, and she bears two sons for Jacob, twelve sons and one daughter, all in the large span of time. But what's interesting is throughout this entire kind of sordid tale, throughout this entire drama in which Jacob just seems to be a pawn in this sibling rivalry between uh, Rachel and Leah, throughout this entire time, the Scriptures are very careful to note that God is the one that is directing all this. God is the one that is opening this womb and closing this womb. He is the one that is behind the scenes working all this out and running all these things in a way that nobody else can observe. The ancient rabbis used to teach that the, the keys of the cloud, meaning nature... The keys of the heart, of the grave, and of the womb are the four keys which God has in his hand and which he entrusts neither with angels nor seraphim. And what that teaches is that all the circumstances of our lives that we live in are, 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 are in God's sovereign care and control. God providentially and sovereignly is involved in all of the messy little details of our lives. You see, it's one thing to believe that God enters into our mess and redeems us, but what the scriptures teach us is that God actually digs his hands in. He gets his hands dirty in the details of our lives. Now, I have to admit, whenever we talk about God's sovereignty and his involvement and in all the events that happen, there's so much mystery that is involved in here. And many people really struggle with the fact that God could be sovereign, that God could actually be in control of all the great things and all the horrible things that happen in our lives. So in response, some people embrace a very different God. Some people believe in a God who's nothing more than a passive watcher. And this is a God who is kind of sitting on the sidelines watching life unfold just like we do. We don't know what's going to happen and he doesn't know what's going to happen. We're surprised by the circumstances of life, and he is surprised by the circumstances of life. He's just a passive watcher. Another option that many people believe about God is that God does have some sort of control, but he's aloof. He just doesn't care. That he created us, he created all things, he created creation, and then he kind of just set it off working and has stepped back and just observes and watches and doesn't really care. But the God of Scripture paints a very different picture of God. It paints a picture of a God who's intimately involved in all the little details of our lives. A God who shapes the course of every little event that comes in our path. It's mysterious, but it's also comforting to know that we serve a God who's not surprised by the circumstances of our life. He's not caught unaware. Instead, he's using all those little circumstances of our lives to shape and to mold us into the people that he wants us to believe, to, to be. Incidentally, for many people, this can become a very angering sort of thing. Because when we think about our lives, when we think about our deepest pain or our deepest frustration or the thing that upsets us most about our lives, if we hold true to the fact that God is sovereign, it means that God's actually in control of the very thing that's most upsetting and angering us about our lives right now. The thing that so frustrates us is actually from the very hand of God. And for many of us, those of us that are even angry at the circumstances of our life, behind that might even stem an anger at God for bringing that circumstance or for not giving us the very thing that we so deeply want. And this is where that struggle of faith becomes so true. Because most people that say they they have a perfect faith that never struggles are people that lie. Because we serve a God who's sovereign, who's in control of the details, and he calls us to have faith and to trust in him in the midst of all those crazy little details. But it's very hard, and it's very mysterious. But we do know that God shapes all those little things about our lives. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, what are the messy details of our life that we're so frustrated about? Those things actually come from the hand of God, just as do the good things and the blessings. Because the truth is we go nowhere by accident, we face no challenge in which God is not present, and we deal with no circumstance in which God is not behind the scenes working it out in a way that shapes us and molds us into who he wants us to be. We often wish that God would give us answers, We wish that he would help us to see why he sent this thing into our lives or why he sent this pain or why he sent this struggle, but he often doesn't give us answers. He simply asks us to trust in him and to be confident that he is present with us. The very thing that he promised Jacob, that I'm I'm committed to you, I'm present with you, I'm there with you, the same commitment he makes to you and I. We might not understand the circumstances of our life, He may not give us the answers about the pain that we deal with, but we know that he is present in the pain. So God sends us people to shape us. He sends us circumstances in our lives to shape us. And thirdly, God shapes us through continually demonstrating the good news of the gospel in our lives. The truth is there are pictures of the good news of the gospel everywhere. And what it does is it reminds us that that the good news of the gospel is not just the beginning of the faith. It's not just the first few steps that we take in the faith. But the gospel is actually the paradigm in which we need to view the entirety of our Christian life. The entirety of our walk with Jesus Christ. The most tragic figure in the story that we read this morning is Leah. I mean, you read about her story and your heart just goes out to Leah. Leah. The scriptures really don't mince any words at all in telling us that Leah is unattractive, she's undesirable, and ultimately she's unloved. And she has to live, if that isn't bad enough, she has to live in the shadow of her beautiful sister. The scriptures describe Rachel as this beautiful character. And to make matters worse, she actually has to share a husband with her beautiful sister. And what you read throughout the narrative that becomes very clear is that Rachel deeply loves Rachel, but he doesn't love Leah at all. She is undesired. She is unloved. She's uncared for. She's hardly paid attention to at all. She is rejected by most people in her life. But what the beauty of the story tells us is though she's rejected by most in her life, she finds a special honor in God. Because what God does is God bestows honor on Leah because Jacob won't. The scriptures tell us that Leah's fourth son, she names Judah. And what we learn about Judah is that Judah becomes the father of the tribe that eventually brings the Messiah. The long-awaited, long-promised Savior of the world, the Messiah, comes through the very line of Leah the woman who was unwanted, and the woman who was unloved. The despised Leah becomes exalted in God's eyes. You now, it's just like God, and it's just like the gospel, to bring all sorts of hope and all sorts of joy out of the messiest and the saddest circumstances. Because the gospel tells us that when it comes to our own spiritual lives, when it comes to our hearts, when it comes to our posture before God, we are like Leah. We were the spiritual outcast. We were the rejected. We were the unloved. But God meets us in our helpless estate and through faith in him gives us a new title. No longer are we rejected. No longer are we unloved. No longer are we defined by our sins and by our mistakes, but God gives us a new title. He gives us a title of wanted, accepted, loved, and cherished. Uh, If you, I don't know if you paid attention on the internet this week, but uh, one of the most powerful stories that kind of came out, it wasn't really even a story, but uh, it was all over the internet this week, and that was of Pope Francis And if you didn't hear about this story, um, uh, uh, there's all these pictures that have surfaced on the internet about a man who wanted to see the Pope. And uh, what's interesting about this man is he suffered from this very rare disease that I'm not even going to try to pronounce. But the, the disease was so bad that it massively uh, disfigured this man's face. He was covered in kind of boils and uh, uh, just all sorts of um, sores, and uh, it just had totally disfigured his face and his whole body for that matter. Mercifully, the the photographers that were, were taking pictures of this didn't take many pictures of this man's face because in most people's minds it was so hideous. But this man was brought before the Pope Pope Francis. And what the Pope does is he walks down from a stage wherever he is and he embraces this man and he touches him and he loves him and he kisses him on this massively disfigured face. You know what the gospel tells us is we were like that man. In our sin, we were spiritually disfigured, we were spiritually wrecked, we were a spiritual mess, we were rejected, we were outcast, we were unloved, and we were unwanted. But Jesus in the gospel embraces us and kisses us and loves us and cherishes us more than anything that we can ever imagine. See, the story of Jacob reminds us us that God uses imperfect and messy people to be the objects of his grace and the vessels of his work of redemption. Let's just think about yourself for a moment as you sit here this morning as you ponder the people in your lives that God is using to shape you as you ponder the circumstances in your life that God is using to shape you as you ponder the demonstrations of the gospel that happen all over you every single day take comfort in knowing that no person or no thing comes your way by accident take comfort in the fact that God is working his plan of redemption in your life, that he is committed to you, that he is present in your life, and take comfort in the fact of the gospel that tells you that in Christ, you are wanted, you are accepted, and you are loved.